Church family, I invite you to open up in God's Word to the book of Genesis. We want to go to God's Word, and it's His Word to us. And we want to make sure we remember that. This is God's very Word breathed out by Him. And is useful, Scripture says, for teaching us, rebuking us, correcting us, and training us in righteousness. It is wise to make us, um, able to make us wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. And so we come to God's word with that understanding of what we are reading. Genesis chapter 25, verses 19 through 34. Title of our message is God's sovereignty in choosing. God's sovereignty in choosing. You'll follow along as I read from God's word. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Paddan Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled within her, and she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak, so they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in his tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once, when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field, and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, Let me eat some of that red stew, for I am exhausted. Therefore his name was called Edom. Jacob said, Sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I am about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, Swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. This is the word of the Lord for his church today. We come to a passage today which serves as a foundational text for our understanding of God's sovereignty and human responsibility. Now, in saying God's sovereignty, you're going to hear me say that a lot today, I'm referring to God's ultimate, unmatched, unthwartable control over the entire world, including over you and me and every human being. In other words, God makes choices and his choices are supreme. That's God's sovereignty. And then in saying human responsibility, I'm referring to our accountability before God to choose to submit to his rule and his reign in our lives. We have the responsibility to choose to honor God and and we must suffer the consequences if we choose not to honor him. That's human responsibility. We see both of these in this passage today. We see that God sovereignly chooses not only the circumstances of people's lives, but He even chooses who will belong to Him. And His choice is not based off of our choices. His choice is prior to our choices. The reason anyone belongs to God and chooses to live for God is because God first chose that 
person. We know, and, and John uh, the Apostle wrote, we love because why? He first loved us. He made the first move towards us and loving us. And yet, God allows us to make choices. He allows us to choose whether or not we're going to live for Him or live for this world. Whether or not we're going to trust His salvation plan or reject His salvation plan. Whether or not we're going to do what's right or do what is wrong in any given time. Perhaps we could summarize this passage this way. Behind all of our choices stands the sovereign choice of God ensuring the fulfillment of His gracious plan of salvation. Behind all of our choices stands the sovereign choice of God and the good news of that is that it ensures the fulfillment of His gracious plan of salvation. Genesis chapter 25 verse 19 begins a a new section in the book of Genesis. Now remember as we've walked through the book of Genesis, there is this phrase in Genesis that serves as a section marker and helps keep the storyline moving forward in a particular direction. That phrase is, these are the generations of. And we see that it may be a a slightly different translation in your Bible, depending on what translation you're, you're reading out of, but these are the generations of. We see that at the beginning here of verse 19 and chapter 25. This is actually the the eighth time that we've seen this phrase in Genesis. We've seen the generations of the heavens and the earth, the generations of Adam, the generations of Noah, the generations of the sons of Noah, the the, the generations of Shem, the generations of Terah, and that was the story that we've spent a lot of time in because there's a lot in Genesis about. That's the story of Abraham. Terah is Abraham's father. Last week, if you back up to verse 12, we saw these are the generations of Ishmael. It's a very short section, and there's a reason for that. And now, we get to the generations of Isaac. This, this begins a new section, and really this section in Genesis doesn't focus as much on Isaac as it focuses on, on Isaac's son, Jacob. And this section runs all the way through chapter 35. You won't see this phrase, the generations of, until you get to chapter 36. Now, um, I mentioned, I mentioned this a moment ago. Not only does this serve as kind of a section marker in the book of Genesis, but this phrase keeps the story moving forward in a particular direction. And the particular direction in which the storyline is moving is toward the fulfillment of God's promise all the way back in Genesis chapter 3 where he promised to send a man born of woman who would destroy the serpent and therefore would be a promised deliverer for mankind. That means that the point of all of this is to reveal the path that leads us to that deliverer, and we know him. We know his name. His name is Jesus, the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. From Adam to Seth to Noah to Shem to Terah to Abraham to Isaac to Jacob, Genesis is moving us forward towards this promised Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And this path to Jesus in God's Word includes many, many, many different choices that we see the the people on the pages of Scripture make. In our passage today, we see many different choices made by Isaac and Rebekah and then their sons, Esau and Jacob. Lots of choices being made, but behind their choices, we see the sovereign choice of God. And it is His sovereign choosing which ensures the fulfillment of His gracious plan of salvation. I want you to notice with me today three truths concerning God's sovereign choice that we learn from this passage of Scripture. The first is this, God's sovereign choice tests our faith to make us rely on Him. God's sovereign choice tests our faith to make us rely upon Him. We're reminded in verses 19 19 through 20 of who Isaac is and who he is married to. Remember, Isaac is Abraham's son. He's the son of promise. 
The shortness of the previous section where we have the generations of Ishmael, the shortness of that section is the textual clue that we're not going to get to the promised one. We're not going to get to Jesus through Ishmael. It's just a quick little summary. We've got to move on to the promised line. And that's the line that's going to go through Isaac and ultimately, as we see, through Jacob. All attention is on this line of promise so that we can get to the promised one. Now, the details about Rebecca's family, if you look in verse 20, the details about her family um, are probably meant to do at least three things for us as we read this. First, they're a reminder of chapter 24, which told the story of Abraham's servant. Remember, going to the land where Abraham was from and finding a wife for Isaac and bringing her back. We studied chapter 24 a couple of weeks ago. And that was necessary to remember to ensure that, that Isaac became the inheritor of God's promised land there. He, he didn't need to leave the land and, and go to where this woman was. And he didn't need to, because then he would forfeit the land, he didn't need to uh, marry someone from that land because the land was being taken away from the people of that land. And so he needed someone from his family, but that person needed to come to him. We saw God do that in chapter 24. I think second, these details in verse 20 about Rebecca's family are foreshadowing what is to come. We're going we're gonna to read a lot about Laban in, in the coming chapters. He's going to be a pretty main character, um, not that great of a guy, by the way. And um, we're going to see him in the coming chapters. So it's kind of foreshadowing what's going to come. But then third, I think verse 20 in reminding us of chapter 24 is reminding us that Rebecca, Isaac's wife, is God's choice of a wife for Isaac. Do you remember that? Do you remember chapter 24? Abraham sent his servant to find a wife for Isaac from his people. And one of the things we saw is that it wasn't just the servant going on his own and deciding, oh yeah, I think this girl will work and taking her back. We saw God's sovereignty over that entire process. Yes, it was a servant who went and found Rebekah and brought her back to Isaac, but it was God who, and we saw this, very, this exact word, appointed Rebekah and led the servant to Rebekah and revealed to the servant that uh, Rebekah was the one. Rebekah was God's choice for Isaac. You say, well, what in the world does that have to do with chapter 25? Well, I think the answer is found in verse 21 of chapter 25. So look at verse 21. Notice what it says there. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife. Well, that's a good thing, right? I mean, pray, pray for your wife, right? If you're married, you, your husband, you should pray for your wife. But why is, she, why is he praying for her? Because she was barren. What do you learn about Rebecca here? She was barren. She couldn't have children. Why does that matter? Well, for the storyline of Genesis, it matters greatly because Isaac is the son of promise. Isaac is the one through whom God's promised to Abraham to make him into a great nation and to make him the father of many nations and to bless the peoples of the world through him would come. That's going to come through Isaac, but those promises can only be fulfilled through Isaac if Isaac has a wife and a son. Well, guess what? God has graciously and sovereignly provided a wife for Isaac. Praise the Lord. But now we learn that the wife that God sovereignly chose for Isaac is barren. What in the world? On the surface, this seems like a very cruel joke. Hey, Isaac, you're the son of promise. You need a wife and a son. So first things first, God says, here's your wife. And you can just imagine Isaac. Thank you, God, right? Thank you. You're amazing. Thank you for providing me with a wife. You're the best, God. And then we fast forward nine months and a year and two years, and five, and ten, and almost twenty years, and we find Isaac with no children. Why? Because God picked out a woman for Isaac who was barren. 
I can only imagine that the, oh, thank you, God, you're amazing, you're the best, perhaps turned into, uh, God, I thought you said I was the promised son of Abraham. I, I thought you picked out Rebecca to be my wife. God, I thought you're sovereign and would be able to pick out the right woman for me so that your promises can be fulfilled. God, this, this doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. Now, I know I'm putting words into Isaac's mouth. We don't know exactly what was going through his mind, what he felt or what he said, but it does at least seem strange to us as we read that God would pick Rebekah, who was barren, to be the wife of Isaac through whom the promised offspring would come. Church, it is easy to doubt God's sovereignty when the circumstances of our lives seem incompatible with the promises of his word. It is easy to doubt God's sovereignty when the circumstances of our lives seem incompatible with the promises of his word. In other words, when we look around and we say, God, I thought you said this, but what's happening doesn't seem to be in accordance with what you said. But God does this for a reason. He sovereignly chooses to give us circumstances which test our faith. Why does he do that? So that we learn to rely upon him so that we forsake self-reliance and we learn to rely fully upon him. What did Rebecca's barrenness drive Isaac to do? It drove him to pray. Verse 21, Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife. Verse 20 tells us that Isaac was 40 years old when he married Rebecca. And verse 26 tells us that Isaac was 60 years old when his sons were born. Now, I don't know if Isaac prayed for 20 years or if it took 20 years for him to finally turn it over to God in prayer and admit that he needed God to do what only God could do. But the bottom line is that God's sovereign choice drove Isaac into a posture of complete dependence upon God. And church family, when God orchestrates circumstances in our lives which are hard or don't make sense and we are left crying out to God for answers and for help and for divine intervention, realize this, God has done something good in our lives. He has done something good in our lives. He's not playing cruel jokes. He is getting us into the best place that we could be, a place of total reliance upon Him where when his word is fulfilled, we just give him all the glory because we say, well, it definitely wasn't me. It was all God. And, and, and we come out of that more in love with God and, and, and with stronger faith in him. It's what we were made for. We were created to need him and to have all of our needs met in him. And so we are most satisfied in life. We experience the greatest joy in life. What I'm about to say is the opposite of the, what the world will tell you, okay? But we, we are most satisfied in life. We experience the greatest joy in life when we are living in complete dependence upon God, in complete reliance upon him, knowing that he is everything we need and we need him more than everything. That is when we're living the lives that God created us to live. And so God's sovereign choice tests our faith to make us rely upon him. We ought to praise the Lord for that. Truth number two, God's sovereign choice is the basis for our inclusion in his promised blessings. God's sovereign choice is the the basis for our inclusion in his promised blessings. 
So we see Isaac pray, and God responds. Verse 21 goes on to say, And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. Now, now look at it from Rebekah's perspective for a moment, and I'm sure she's just overjoyed, right? 20 years in the making, and, and, um, and, and she's, she's, got, she's pregnant. She's going to have a child. And, and so she's just she's excited. She's thankful. But she wasn't so thrilled with how she was feeling. And I don't mean just emotions, I mean physically, how she was feeling on the inside. Well, why was that? Well, she felt like there was a battle going on inside of her. She felt like there was a war going on. Now, ladies in here who have been pregnant, I, I, I know just from my wife, um, and, uh, and sometimes, sometimes that baby likes to kick around, right? And it's fun for a little while until that baby gets a little bigger and there's not enough room in there. And, um, and it feels like somebody's kicking, kicking the inside of your ribs. I'm only, I'm only telling you what my wife has said, right? And so I, I don't know. I, it, it sounds pretty uncomfortable to me. Um, sounds pretty uncomfortable. Well, well she's got this, but, but it seems worse. I mean, this, this seems terrible, right? She's probably talking to other ladies and like, is, is this how it was for you? Because, I mean, it sounds like my insides are about to just get ripped apart. Well, what was going on? Verse 22 says that the children struggled within her. And she said, if it is thus, why is this happening to me? Now, we know from, from the way it's written that now it's not just a child. There's children in her. But she probably didn't know that. She might not have known that, right? I mean, there were no ultrasound machine, machines then. And so she probably doesn't know at this point. She just knows it. my insides are about to explode. And, uh, and so she says, if it is thus, why is this happening to me? The original Hebrew is kind of hard to translate. It basically reveals that she was at wit's end because of the discomfort that she was experiencing. She didn't know what was going on inside of her. All she knew that it, was that it felt like a battle was raging and her ribs seemed to be taking the worst of the punishment. What was actually happening? Well, in God's sovereignty, he put her, like Isaac, in a position of crying out to him. Verse 22 continues, so she went to inquire of the Lord. And what she learned was that there really was a battle going on inside of her. She was carrying twin boys, and they were not cuddled up as, as brothers in the womb might would be. Uh, they were fighting. They actually were. They were at war with one another. Verse 23 the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb and two peoples from within you shall be divided. So there's going to be this division, animosity between them. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. And if we read ahead, we know that's exactly what happened. And we know that there was war between these two nations that came from Rebekah. And then we go to verse 24 and 26. We're going to come back to verse 23 in a second. And we learn she did give birth to the twins. One was hairy and red, and they named him Esau. All right? He was a, he was a, a, hair, a hairy, hairy and red. That's our description of Esau. And the other one came out second. They're twins, but one's got to come out first. One's got to come out second. And the second one came out holding on to his brother's heel. And, and so he's kind of got a little, he kind of got a little help. He got a little ride. He didn't have to work as hard. Okay? And so he got named Jacob, which means he cheats. Right? Hey, you cheated. You, 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 got, you let your brother help you uh, be born. And so he, got, he gets named, Jacob gets named, he cheats. That's what, that's what Jacob means. I want to go back to verse 22 for a moment. Not only would this have been incredible news to her just for the fact that, hey, not only am I having a child, I'm having two. I've got, I've got twins coming. It's also incredible because of which one would serve the other. Which one would serve the other? The older is going to serve the younger. And this was completely abnormal 
This was not the way it's supposed to be. It was the firstborn who received the family blessing. It was the firstborn who received the birthright. It was the firstborn who received the inheritance, all of it, or at least an extra portion of it, depending on how many children there were. But that wouldn't be the case with these brothers. The one who came out first would actually serve the one who came out second. And remember who we're talking about. We're talking about the sons of Isaac, the grandsons of Abraham. We're talking about the promises of God. We're talking about God's promised blessing and God's promised people. We've got to interpret this passage in light of the rest of Genesis and the rest of God's word. What God was saying is that this second son, not the first son, not the firstborn, would be the one through whom the promised blessings would come. The second one, not the first one, would be included in God's promised blessings. So we ask the, ask the question, on what basis would this be the case? On what basis is it the case that Jacob would be included and not Esau? On the basis of their pedigree from where they came? No, they both had the same father and mother. In fact, they were twins. On the basis of their character? No, they, they hadn't done anything good or bad yet. And we'll see that both are pretty much equally capable of making some pretty bad choices. They weren't even born when this is said. The basis of the older serving the younger, the basis of the younger being included in God's promised blessing of salvation was simply this, God's sovereign choice. God chose the younger. Church, one of the foundational truths of the Bible concerning God is God's sovereignty over all of creation. And one of the foundational truths of our salvation is God's sovereignty over our salvation. God's sovereignty over all includes sovereignty over our salvation. Everyone who is included in God's salvation promises is included most foundationally because God chose to include them. Now in a moment we're going to talk about human choices and the importance of human choices, but we can't rush past this point, the point of God's choosing. Why would the younger son be the recipient of God's promised blessing? Because God chose him before he was even born. And the same is true for us. Yes, we must choose to repent of our sin. We've we got to choose to place our faith in the Lord Jesus. We've got to choose to submit our lives to the lordship of Jesus Christ. But standing behind our choice to believe in Jesus is God's choice to include us in his promised blessing of salvation. You say, Zach, I think you might be taking the story of Jacob and Esau and their birth a little bit too far. Does it really have that much to do with our salvation? Doesn't just have to do with kind of where Jesus is coming from. He's going to come from the Isaac line, not the, Esau, the, the Jacob line, not the Esau line. Well, my only response is this. The Apostle Paul, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, certainly thought this passage applied to our salvation. In chapter 9 of Paul's letter to the Romans, he dives into the topic of, of whether or not Israel is going to be saved. I don't have time to get into all of this. His answer is that all Israel will be saved, but not all Israel is Israel. In other words, not all of ethnic Israel is the people of God. You see, the Jews thought that they would be included in God's salvation promises simply because of their pedigree and because of their works, because they were biological descendants of Abraham and because they had tried to obey the, the law. But Paul's response to that is this, not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. 
This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of promise are counted as offspring. I'm reading from Romans chapter 9. Now, we've talked about this. We've talked, already actually talked about that passage as we've studied Abraham's life. It's only the children of promise who are included in God's promised salvation. But then Paul, he just dives even deeper. He dives even deeper into the foundations of our salvation, and he says that our inclusion is most foundationally a result of God's sovereign choice. He say, Paul, how do you know that? He says, Genesis chapter 25, Jacob and Esau. Let me read to you Romans chapter 9, verses 10 through 13. And not only so, Paul writes, but also when Rebekah, this is Paul, several thousand years later, reflecting back on Genesis 25, he says, not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, and now he's going to quote from the book of Malachi, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. And that love-hate language is, is in the context of God choosing one and not choosing the other. That's Paul's commentary on Genesis chapter 25. And explaining how everyone is included, or excuse me, how anyone is included in God's salvation promises, he goes back to Genesis chapter 25 and he says this. He says, just like Jacob, our inclusion is ultimately a result of God's sovereign choice, God's electing purposes in our lives. Brothers and sisters, two, two brief applications of that. Number one, that is a humbling truth. That is a humbling truth. If we can ponder this truth of God's sovereign choice, and we are not humbled, our hearts have not been changed by the gospel. It's a humbling truth. If you're ever tempted to boast in your position as a member of God's family, if you're ever tempted to look down on someone who is not a follower of Jesus, if you're ever tempted to boast in your faith, look at my faith that I have in Jesus, remember that if God had not mercifully chosen you, you never would have been awakened from your sinful slumber to believe in Jesus as your Savior and Lord. He gets all the glory for it. This truth humbles us. But this doctrine of God's sovereign choice, this doctrine of election is not only a humbling truth, it's also an assuring truth. It's a truth that brings assurance into our lives as followers of Christ. Because our salvation ultimately rests upon God's sovereign choice, we can have assurance of our salvation. The doctrine of security of the believer rests upon the doctrine of God's sovereign choice in salvation. Paul's already pointed out this benefit of God's electing purposes in chapter 8, the benefit of assurance of salvation. If you to flip back from Romans chapter 9 to Romans chapter 8, you would find Paul saying these words, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Notice the certainty there. It, there's no... Well, some that, were, some that were called were justified. Some, it's just those who are predestined are called, and those who are called are justified, and those who are called are glorified. That glorification that happens when we see the Lord Jesus Christ one day. And then he goes on and he says this, What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? That is assurance of salvation right there. 
And you know, you keep reading that passage, it goes on where he talks about what's going to separate us from the love of God. He says nothing. He goes through a whole list of things. He says nothing. We're more than conquerors through him who loved us. Church, as members of the redeemed, as members of the blood-bought children of God, we ought to rejoice in utter humility and in complete confidence at the sovereignty of God when it comes to salvation. God's sovereign choice is the basis for our inclusion in his promised blessings. But God's sovereign choice of people is not the end of the story. In fact, you could almost say it's, it's the beginning in a very real way. Because in God's sovereignty... He has designed us to have the capacity for making choices. He instructs us what choices we should make, and he holds us accountable for the choices that we end up making. And so truth number three is this. God's sovereign choice plays out in our choices for which we will be held responsible. God's sovereign choice plays out in our choices for which we will be held responsible. Yes, on the one hand, we see God's sovereign choice of Jacob highlighted in this passage. But you know what else we see in this passage? We see people making all sorts of choices. Verse 27 tells us that Esau was a hunter, while Jacob was more of a homebody. And that's important for what's about to happen, sets the stage. In verse 28, we see that Isaac and Rebekah, they make choices. They choose to play favorites. Not a good idea. Isaac, his favorite son is Esau. He likes wild game. Nothing wrong with that, but he, in the process, he picks Esau as his favorite. Guess what? Rebecca picks Jacob. And we're going to see that, that that's, that's, never, that's never a good thing, by the way, right? That's not a good thing. Um, and, and it leads to disunity in their family, as we, we would imagine. And, and then, verses 29 through 34, we see both Esau and Jacob make some choices. Esau's gone hunting. He comes in from hunting. He's exhausted. He sees his brother cooking some red stew. And, and he basically yells out, give me some of that red stuff. All right, if you translate it, that's basically what he said. I want red stuff. I want it now. I want it in my mouth. I want to swallow it. I want to eat it. It's kind of like, give me some red stuff. I see the red stuff. I want that. that's, that's kind of what he's saying which then the text tells us he gets a nickname from that, and the name is Edom. Edom, it sounds like the Hebrew word for red. And so he gets the nickname of red. So any time in Scripture, in the Old Testament, you see the nation of Edom, that's the nation that came from Esau. And so he gets nicknamed red because he says, I want some red stuff. So Esau demands some stew. Um, apparently Jacob was a good cook, and Jacob then has a choice to make. And his choice has come with some forethought. He's a schemer. Jacob's a schemer. He's, he's always trying to kind of, remember, he's the heel holder. He's trying to figure out an easier way to, 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 to get through life. And so, uh, so he, 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 he says, you know what, here's, here's my chance. I know I'm the second born. I know that the birthright, the inheritance belongs to Esau, but this is my opportunity. This is my opportunity to take it. He tells Esau, yeah, sure, but give me your birthright. Now Esau has a choice to make. And Esau chooses temporary relief to his hungry stomach over the long-term benefit of possessing the birthright. In other words, he agrees to Jacob's offer. He trades in his birthright for a bowl of stew. We must not miss the significance, church, of what happens in these choices that these individuals make. Now, I learned this story as a little kid. I've heard it many times, but it takes a long time to just to grow in your understanding of God's word. And, and so it's only recently that I've, I've, I feel like I've begun to understand, probably just because I haven't taken the time to stop and think about it, to understand the significance of Esau's choice here. 
and how horrible of a choice it was. I've always just viewed it merely in relation to his immediate family. Like, ah, oh, that's not good. He's supposed to be the one that, he's the firstborn. He's supposed to be the one that take care of his family and the responsibilities that come with that. And he's rejecting that. And certainly that was a part of why this was a wrong choice for Esau. But, but because Esau was Isaac's son and Abraham's grandson, the birthright for him meant the promised blessings of God, ultimately leading to Jesus. It meant the promised blessings of God. That's what the birthright meant for Esau because, because he is Isaac's son and Abraham's grandson. No doubt Esau and Jacob have been told about God's promises to Abraham, their grandfather, and to Isaac, their father. And so when Esau despised his birthright, as verse 34 says, he was rejecting not only his position as the firstborn and all the family responsibilities that came with that, he was also rejecting the promised blessing of God and the role of being the next person in the lineage of the Messiah, of the promised deliverer. On the other hand, Jacob saw the goodness of the birthright and wanted to be a part of the promised blessing from God. Now, the way Jacob went about getting it was wrong. He prayed on his brother's hunger in order to get the birthright, but it wasn't wrong for Jacob to want to be in on God's blessing. As one commentator said, he wrongly schemes against his brother because he correctly believes that the birthright in the line of Abraham and Isaac holds tremendous blessing and promises. What do we see when we look at all this? Well, we see choices. We see human choices. They each made choices. But what do their choices end up revealing? Well, their choices end up revealing God's sovereign choice. Yes, Esau made a choice to reject his birthright, and Jacob made a choice to gain the birthright, and they were real choices that they made. But from the perspective of God, they ultimately made those choices because God chose Jacob and not Esau. It all fit into God's plan. He's sovereign over it all. Now, it's at this point that we can be tempted to blame God for Esau despising his birthright. But Scripture doesn't allow that. Scripture doesn't allow that. I want you to notice how this passage ends. Verse 34 places the blame squarely on the shoulders of Esau. What does it say? Thus Esau despised his birthright. And even the New Testament book of Hebrews places the blame squarely on the shoulders of Esau and uses him as a warning to Christians the writer of Hebrews says, do not be unholy like Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal. And so what we see is that God's sovereign choice plays out in our choices for which we will ultimately be held responsible. You say, well, what does that, what does that have to do with me? Well, friend, just like it's true that our inclusion in God's promised blessing of salvation is ultimately dependent upon God sovereignly choosing us, it is also just as true that we have a choice to make as well. God's sovereign choice plays out in our choices for which we will be held responsible. Listen, God's sovereign choice is God's choice. It's not our job to make God's decisions for him, nor to question his choice. But it is, listen very carefully to this, it is our responsibility to make the right choice when it comes to whether or not we will believe in God's salvation promises. By believing in the promise deliver the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, after Paul, in the book of Romans, writes about God's sovereignty over our salvation in Romans 9, he writes about human responsibility in Romans chapter 10. Listen to what he says in Romans chapter 10, beginning in verse 9. He says, because if you confess, if you confess 
with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. And if you believe in your heart that God raised from the, from the dead, if you make that choice, then guess what? You will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And so, when it comes to God choosing us for salvation, church, and us choosing to believe in Jesus for salvation, it's not an either or, it's a both and. The Bible says that both are true. It's ultimately God's choice, but God's choice plays out in human choices. And we, you, me, we are responsible for the choices that we make. There's so much more that could be said, more I want to say today. There are certain temptations that arise as we ponder these deep truths of God. I would encourage you to read this week all of Romans 9 through 11 and meditate on it. But I want to conclude by examining our lives in light of Genesis 25, verse 19 through 34. And I just want to ask you just a few questions. As we close, Christian, is your faith being tested right now? Is your faith being tested right now? Perhaps God has sovereignly chosen certain circumstances in your life to create an environment for you where you will run from self-reliance and you will depend perhaps more than you ever have upon God. That's a good thing. Lean into that. Lean into that and be thankful for God's work in your life. Let me ask you another question. Are you saved this morning, but perhaps feeling a little proud about your salvation? Remember, your salvation is ultimately rooted in God's choice. So there is no room for boasting among the redeemed people of God. God did it, not us. Or perhaps you're saved today, but you're questioning the security of your salvation. Maybe you've messed up. Maybe you know that you're, you're not perfect. You know you've trusted in Jesus, but could God still love me? Absolutely. God doesn't go back on His choices. God doesn't change His mind. Those whom He chooses are His forever. If you've trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation, you belong to Him forever and ever and ever. And nothing is going to change that. So be confident, humbly confident in your salvation. And finally, it's a very important question for us today. Have you chosen to believe in God's promised blessing of salvation? You say, well, how do you do that? You choose to believe in Jesus. He is the fulfillment of God's promised blessing of salvation. He's the way that we can be included in God's promised blessing of salvation. It's Christ and Christ alone. And so have you believed in him? Listen, our lives are full of choices. I can remember, I can remember here, even not even from when I was a kid, but um, my dad say, um, and I think it was his mom that told him this. And I always remember this. And I share this with other people, um, even when they're um, uh, kind of thinking about trusting in Christ for salvation or thinking about getting married. I think it was... Um, your mom, my grandmother, that said two most important decisions that you'll ever make in your life is, is whether or not you're going to choose to trust in Jesus for salvation and, and then if you're going to get married, who that is, who, who, who you're going to marry because those, those make the, a huge impact on your life. But the first is whether or not you're going to trust in Christ. 
Listen, that's the most important decision that you will ever make. And so have you trusted in Christ for salvation? Be held responsible for your choice in that. Have you believed in Christ? Listen, Jesus loves you so much that he took the punishment, God's wrath for your sin upon himself on the cross. And he died so that you could have life. And then he rose from the dead, which guarantees that everyone who belongs to him is going to rise one day as well. So what choice have you made when it comes to salvation? God's salvation promises. If you've never trusted in Jesus Christ for salvation, friend, you must do that. I can't make that choice for you. No one else can make that choice for you. I promise you, if we could, there's a room full of people here who would make that choice for you today because they don't want you to miss out on God's promised blessing of salvation. So would you choose to follow Jesus? Where does this passage leave us? It leaves us worshiping God, praising God for his willingness to show mercy to sinners, praising God for the confidence that we can have in salvation, praising God for his continual work in our lives that make us depend upon him more and more every day. Church, behind all of our choices stands the sovereign choice of God. And the, the good news of that is that that ensures, because it's not left up to us, it's not left ultimately in our hands, it's left in God's hands, that ensures the fulfillment of his plan of salvation. And so let's rejoice in that. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your love and mercy and grace in our lives. God, right now, if there is someone who has has never trusted in Jesus Christ for salvation, Lord, I pray right now you draw their hearts. Oh, they don't need to talk to anyone else in here. They need to talk to you. Because you're the one who saves. God, I pray that right now they would confess to you that they are a sinner. And they would say thank you to you that you have sent Jesus to rescue them. And I pray that they would ask you to save them. Not because of who they are, but because of who you are. Because of what Jesus has done for them. Lord, I pray that right now they will believe in Jesus for salvation. And God, for those of us who have trust in Christ, Lord, as we ponder the depths of the riches of of the, the knowledge of you, God, and your ways and the ways in which you work, Lord, I pray that we would we would be humbled. Lord, that we would be confident in you and in our salvation through you. And I pray that these great truths from your word would lead us to live for you to worship you. God, you are great. There is no one like you. We love you, Father. Thank you for this passage of Scripture. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.